0: through the decades. And Lord, as you give us our days, may we be teachable and willing and submissive to your will. Lord, thank you for your blessings this day of life and for your presence with us. We thank you for our children as they are downstairs in Children's Church as well as in the nursery. Thank you for those who care for them. And thank you, Lord, uh, for the freedom we enjoy in this country to meet together. And Lord, we thank you and we do pray for our government, for our president, others in leadership. We pray, Lord, they would seek your wisdom and not their own. And Lord, uh, we live in very tumultuous times, and we pray that as believers in Jesus Christ, we'd have wisdom, winsomeness, and uh, just confidence to share the reason of the hope that lies within us. And thank you, Lord, for each one here today. Thank you for our guests that are with us today, and may each of us have eyes to see your blessings. And thank you that you pour out your blessings day by day. Lord, thank you for your word today for this psalm. We pray that you would give us understanding, that your Holy Spirit would teach us, that you would give accuracy to the words I would say, and we thank you that you are our teacher. We praise you for your goodness today in Jesus' powerful name I pray, amen and amen. You may be seated. I think, yeah, Junior Church starts now, and so if you are involved in Junior Church, you may go downstairs. Or I think they go across the lobby, don't they? Yeah, over to the room over there. And uh, so we are thankful for you. You know, just an aside here, one of the marks of a healthy church is that a healthy church cares for its children. And so I'm always blessed when I see adults taking care of our children downstairs and in the nursery. And we are very blessed and thankful for that ministry. And thank you uh, for being here today. you know, there are fundamental quest- questions in life, and uh, we all know these questions. In fact, uh, comedians have made fun of them, but uh, who am I, where did I come from, why am I here, and where am I going? And each of us have asked those questions. Well, at the end of this last week, uh, Don and I were down in Pullman at WSU, and I think they have the answer, you know, because they are cougars. And, uh, and, and by the way, this is all said with I recognize that I may be in great trouble because there are many... WSU Cougars in this room, and uh, this is not a slide on you personally, but uh, uh, it, it, you know, it was game night last night as they played Cal, and uh, so they were gearing up for this game, and we, as we drove around campus and uh, got to see the campus really for the first time, uh, it was interesting to me, and I'm still recovering from crimson and gray blindness you know, everything was crimson and gray. It was amazing. And it was amazing to me is uh, there were a lot in the restaurants and things, there were guys my age all geared up, ready for the game, you know. And I was trying to think, am I that kind of alumni? Uh, I went to the University of Montana in Missoula, and I really don't gear up on game weekends. But, well, anyway. Uh, don't tell them I don't do that, though, so. But I was thinking about those questions, uh, who are we, where did we come from, why are we here, and where are we going? And they are fundamental questions in life that if we think about them much, uh, we should contemplate those questions in a serious way. Uh, Bertrand Russell, who died in 1970, he was a British philosopher, a mathematician, a historian, a writer, a social critic, political activist, and a Nobel laureate. And of course, Bertrand Russell, who... He would be called the high priest of humanism. At various times in his life, he was agnostic, he was atheistic, he was humanistic, he was mechanistic. I mean, all these things. Very interesting life, a very interesting man, but one who never uh, believed in Jesus Christ. In fact, in 1927, he gave a speech in Great Britain and also wrote a short article about why I am not a Christian. I read part of it. Uh, I have not read the whole thing, but I've read part of it. It makes interesting reading. it helps help you understand perhaps, perhaps some family members or neighbors or co workers or people you know who would uh, say that they are not a Christian, they don't believe in Jesus or the Bible. But Bertrand Russell uh, eloquently expressed the answer, his answer anyway, to those four questions that I've posed to all of us. And I'm quoting him. He wrote that the life of man is a long march through the night, surrounded by invisible foes, tortured by weariness and pain, toward a goal that few can hope to reach and where none may tarry long. One by one as they march, our comrades vanish from our sight, seized by the silent orders of an omnipotent death. Brief and powerless is man's life. On him and all his race, the slow, sure doom falls pitiless and dark. Blind to good and evil, reckless of destruction, omnipotent matter rolls on its relentless way. For man condemned today to lose his dearest, tomorrow himself to pass through the gates of darkness. It remains only to cherish, yet the blow falls and lofty thoughts that ennoble his little life, little day. Uh, unquote. Uh, that philosophy, by the way, is very prevalent in our lives today, around us, in our culture and societies. It is producing a widespread despair, uh, In actually, in our country, in the United States, one of the uh, most prolific countries as far as material goods and of uh, lifestyle well-being. It seems like there is widespread despair in our world today, Everywhere, uh, young people, uh, men and women and boys and girls, teenagers are succumbing to the philosophy of despair. It says there is nothing permanent in this life, and life is futile, and we live out our days in a hopeless tangle of meaninglessness. Of course, it was not new with Bertrand Russell. Shakespeare said the same thing, basically. He just said it better and put it in a shorter sentence. Shakespeare said, life is but a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying Nothing, boy. Are you depressed yet? Are you <laughs> depressed yet? Uh, hang with me here. We're heading for some good news, but uh, the violent attempt to grasp what life is is the moment we see on the darkness of all of our lives. In that size, in that sense, there's a sense of frustration and meaninglessness. And this may uh, mark your life. It may mark people you know, loved ones, friends, co-workers. Uh, But that despair seems to spread like a blanket of gloom across the peoples of the earth as we all together face inexorable problems in our culture, society, whether it's political, whether it's uh, military, whatever it may be. But I think all of us have days where we can identify more with Bertrand Russell and Shakespeare than we can with the God of the Bible And all of us have physical problems, difficult people, impossible demands. And, of course, remember from our study in the book of Ephesians, there are satanic attacks. There are these demonic attacks to discourage us and bring us to despair in our day-to-day life. And we will either conquer them or we will be conquered by these thoughts and by these examples and things as we live in a world that does not always make sense. So how then do we live is the question. And Psalm 8 gives us a corrective lens. I think I've told you before that I'm blind in one eye, and can't see out of the other if I don't have these. I need corrective lenses, you know, to get around in life. And so we need the corrective lens in order to see what is accurate, what is true, and to view our world through those lenses and view ourselves in relationship to that world. And Psalm 8 does that for us. If you take your copy of scripture, and if you've not already done so, turn to Psalm 8, in the middle of your Bibles there, Psalm 8, has this ascription above it uh, for the choir director on the Getith, a Psalm of David. So we are identified with the man who wrote this psalm, uh, David himself, of course, the great poet, the great musician of Israel, became king, and uh, some scholars uh, debate about this, but uh, many uh, think that David wrote this psalm, Psalm 8, right after his victory over Goliath. He was a young man and a sheep herder. He was yet to be king. And out under the stars of the heavens in a Middle Eastern night, he wrote this psalm, this great psalm of poetry. Remember, psalms is a book of poetry. It's a poetic literature or genre of literature. And usually it was set the music. And the hint we get here in that ascription is on the getith, on the getith. And that's a Hebrew word that is not translated for us. Uh, but it's to the choir master on this. And the getith means wine press, a wine press. And it also could designate an instrument of that day that was shaped like a wine press. And uh, the getith (coughs) was shaped like a wine press. The Greeks took that Hebrew word and the instrument which it represented and called it a kithara. A kithara, it was a stringed instrument. And then from that, we know we have the Spanish guitaria, are you getting to where we're going here? Guitaria, and from the English, guitar, guitar. And so April this morning was playing the wine press. and uh, But don't put any grapes through the strings into the hole there, okay? We are therefore really in a prophetic succession of musical instruments when we have guitar accompaniment. And uh, so that's one way to look at that introduction because this psalm was designed to be sung to a stringed instrument. We're not sure exactly what it looked like in the days of David, but he was probably very familiar with it. He's been uh, illustrated, especially in Sunday school literature, as playing a harp out in the desert under the Middle Eastern night. Uh, This psalm, Psalm 8, uh, Derek Kidner, K-I-D-N-E-R, who is a British commentator, he has a two-volume commentary on the book of Psalms, And Kidner is uniquely gifted to explain what is going on in very short words, in very small sentences, if you will. He doesn't write gigantic volumes, and I appreciate Derek Kidner a lot, but he writes about Psalm 8, and I quote him. This psalm is an unsurpassed example of what a hymn should be, celebrating as it does the glory and the grace of God, rehearsing who he is and what he has done, and relating us in our world to him, all with a mastery uh, masterly economy of words, and in a spirit mingled with joy and awe, Unquote. you know David marvels in this psalm, if you think of a theme of this psalm, he is marveling at the glorious Lord of heaven. if you were listening to Bill as he read this psalm, uh, the God of heaven, whose name is excellent and should be and, and he should use people, and he marvels at the fact that he uses. People of us in earth's dominion. It's the dignity of mankind. And David is looking at God and mankind not from the sense of the chaos and rebellion that happened in Genesis chapter 3, but he's looking at what God had designed us for. And he's looking ahead, and we will see that in a few minutes. We're going to see five things here. We're going to see, first of all, God is a God of majesty God is a God of majesty. Look at your text again. Verse 1 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Notice in verse 9 that he closes with the same phrase, which we'll look at in a moment. But this is his excellent name. And a name reveals character. In Hebrew literature, a name always had a deeper meaning than just a label, but it revealed a deeper character. And some of you have names that reveal a deeper character, it seems like. Others of us don't have a name. And uh, my middle name is David, and so uh, my mother and dad thought that that would be a good name for me to have. I don't know where the Gary came from. My mother used to tell me it came from the Old English, and it meant, I don't even remember what she said it meant. But I don't know about that. But anyway, his excellent name, God's excellent name, reveals character. But look at verse 8 here. Our Lord, O Lord, our Lord. It's evocative, uh, which means you're, he's calling out. The psalmist is calling out. And again, I'll mention that these are two different names for a letter translated English Lord. And most English versions will make the distinction between the two names. The first one, L. O-R-D, capitals, all in capitals or capital L, small caps, O-R-D, is the proper name of God. It is the self-existent one. It is Yahweh in Hebrew or Jehovah as the King James translators translated it. And that is the name that God revealed himself in Exodus chapter 3 to Moses when he said, I am that I am when Moses asked, who shall I say sent him? And uh, this name reveals that God is the covenant keeper. He is the one who made promises to Abraham, and he's going to keep those promises. And this is his personal name, Yahweh or Jehovah, if you prefer. It's a personal name. The second Lord is in capital L, small letters, O-R-D, and that is make the distinction between Yahweh. It is That's the word Adonai or Lord and Master or Sovereign. It's more of a identifying factor that he is the controller he is the owner and that's the stress there the lord stresses that lord stresses god's dominion over his creation whereas his proper name is the i am the great i am and so when you read especially in the old testament make sure you're aware of that distinction in your introductions to your bibles which i encourage you all to read is that it will tell you that it is doing that that capital l Uh, Small cap O-R-D is the proper name of God or the personal name uh, Yahweh uh, is how we get that. And so this is the distinction here. That's his excellent name that reveals his character. So God is a God of majesty. David declares here how majestic or glorious is your name in all the earth. And it matters not if people recognize the glory or not or the majesty or not because God is glorious whether anybody worships him or not. He is majestic in that. Verses two through eight tell us why he came to this conclusion and what it is about God that is so impressive. The first thing is rather startling. It is God's simplicity. God's simplicity. God is not simple, but there is simplicity in how he works out his plan. And he puts it this way. Look at the second part of verse one. Who have displayed your splendor above the heavens from the mouth of infants and nursing babes. You have established strength. Because of your adversaries, to make the enemy and revengeful cease, his exalted glory he has displayed his glory his 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 uh, splendor in the heavens. If we were to go to job chapter thirty eight which is really just a few pages back, job is our God is answering job there, and he is revealing his glory and his splendor. The book of Job is really a book about faith, not about suffering, but about faith in the midst of suffering. And all these uh, people, if you remember the book of Job, were telling him this thing and that thing. And yet at the end, God reveals himself to Job as a glorious, faithful God. And so he has displayed or set his splendor, his glory. And, of course, this is whether it's recognized by human beings or not, he is still glorious. We know the rest of the story when we go to the New Testament, the Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, where it tells us that God has revealed himself in creation, and yet mankind has chosen to worship the creation rather than the creator. And without the opening of our eyes by the Holy Spirit, we would be in that boat too. God reveals himself through creation, through everything he has done. And so when we look up at the heavens at night and see the stars and the moon and all of the glorious things we can see with the human eye, and then we know from science how many things that are out there, uh, it's infinite, isn't it? And so God's glory, his majesty is displayed. What impressed David was the fact that this transcendent glory of God, his greatness, which is far above all the heavens, nevertheless, it could be grasped and explained by a child. Isn't it interesting? That had gripped this psalmist. Evidently, David, who was probably a young person at this time, he'd often struggled to put into words and thoughts the ideas of his heart, but he found that all his rationality, his intelligence, was challenged by such an attempt to explain who and what God is. Yet here is a God who can reveal himself in such marvelous ways that children, babes, infants, even can grasp what he means. In fact, they are often understand more rapidly and more thoroughly than those with great intelligence. The weakest shall confound the strong. Isn't it interesting here that he said, from the mouths of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength. From what is weak, Strength comes through. God in his design has done it. His elementary defense. He has chosen the defenseless to defend him. Isn't that interesting? Those of you who have taught young children in uh, Sunday school classes or down in children's church, you know that children can have some wonderful questions about God and some things that cause us to stagger when we try to explain them. He establishes strength through those things. Later on, in Matthew chapter 21, as Jesus has an encounter with the Pharisees and the religious uh, leaders of Israel, and uh, he tells us in Matthew 21, 14 through 16, that the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. This is after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, just before his crucifixion. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done And the children were shouting in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They became indignant. Isn't that interesting? And by the way, this wasn't a trained children's choir. These were the rabble of the street. These were children who happened to be there. And they were saying, Hosanna to the son of David. And he said to them, do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said, yes, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies? You've prepared praise for yourself. And this is the the psalm that uh, Jesus was quoting. These were the ones who caught the edge of the truth here, these children. And they are the ones who see the mighty power of God. You know, uh, if you think and if you struggle with your own abilities mentally, if you don't think you're very intelligent, just remember that God does not require the eloquence or the brilliance of an intellectual adult to defend the honor of his name. But he does require the submission and candor of a child. And you see that when Jesus interacts with children, he is illustrating for us how we come to him with the submission and candor of a child. In Matthew chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligence and have revealed them to infants. Interesting statement in that. The psalmist is not only on the mark with the greatness of God, but also that which baffles the enemy. Notice that that's what is used, is the weakness of infants and babes because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. And I think that this uh, psalmist, David, didn't know what he was foretelling, but it was picturing that picture in Matthew chapter 21 where the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests were adversaries and vengeful against the Lord Jesus Christ the ability to convey the truth. God has founded a bulwark. He's erected a wall, one person wrote, because of the foes in order to silence the enemy and the avenger. This uh, expresses the idea that when God speaks through children and childlike persons, he often baffles the rational and the intelligence. Those who pride themselves upon their wisdom are frequently routed by the insight of some rather insignificant person. I love the story. If you don't know my background, when I was in college, I was, went into college. I was agnostic in high school and college, which uh, basically is a philosophy that says that you don't know if there is a God, you don't know there might be. I call it the lazy man's philosophy uh, because, ah, uh, we don't know, we don't know. Uh, and then I moved into atheism until a professor, uh, in fact, he was my uh, bonehead English professor at Montana State University, and he was agnostic. And he challenged me one day, have you, ever, have you been in every cubic yard of the universe? And I said, of course not. He said, then how do you know there's no God? And uh, that stopped me, and I quickly went back to agnosticism. And, uh, and thankfully, God finally opened my eyes to the truth. But I think of the story of uh, an atheist who was lecturing against God, and again and again in his lecture, he would state, there is no God, unquote. Uh, There was a rather simple individual in the back of the room listening who was a believer in God and a Christian, and he raised his hand, and when the lecturer uh, asked him what he wanted, he said, Sir, the next time you say there is no God, would you mind adding, as far as I know? As far as I know. By the way, this is instructive for us who have dealings with agnostics and atheists uh, that they need to say that. With King Insight, this... uh, person had put his finger upon the fallacy of that lecturer, the lecturer was trying to defend a negative absolute, there is no God, it's a negative absolute, it is absolutely impossible to defend that statement, and no one can ever prove that there is no God, and so right away the atheist is in a tight spot, uh, this uneducated person saw the error and put his finger on it, You and he said, you are limited by your own knowledge, You don't know enough yet. You don't know if there is no God, so do not not speak out of your ignorance. So next time you encounter someone who says there is no God or the Bible is a bunch of myths, you can add and say, would you please add as far as I know, as far as I know, because we are limited in what we know in that sense. So uh, you cannot defend a negative absolute in that sense. And so... In this expression of praise to God, David stands amazed that the God of creation, the great and glorious Yahweh or Jehovah, would pay attention to frail people on earth. God understands that God glorifies himself in the heavens, and how can he glorify himself on the earth through such weak and sinful people? The psalmist now turns to the second thing that has impressed him about God, his wisdom, majesty, simplicity, and now God is a God of wisdom in verses 3 through 4. Look at 3 through 4 again. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you should take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? A marvelous theme that God should graciously entrust his dominion to humans. Remember back in Genesis, after the creation of Adam and Eve, they were given the responsibility of having dominion over creation. That was God's original intent as they kept the Garden of Eden there. Of course, through man's fall, he failed in that dominion. And now we see man's dominion as ravaging the earth rather than caring for the earth. I read about Teddy Roosevelt, you know, President Theodore Roosevelt. And uh, some of his friends, when they would visit him at uh, Sagamore Hill, where he lived from time to time, they would play a a, a little game in the evening. After they would talk, they would go out on the lawn and they would search the skies until they found a faint spot of light mist beyond the lower left-hand corner of the Great great Square of Pegasus. By the way, I went out last night, tried to look for this, but I don't even know what the Great Square of Pegasus is, so I'm really in trouble. I need Teddy Roosevelt to show me. And then one of the other would recite... Quote, that is the spiral galaxy of Andromeda. It is as large as our Milky Way. It is one of a 100 million galaxies. It consists of 1 billion suns, each larger than our own sun, Unquote. And then Teddy Roosevelt would grin at his guests and say, now I think that we are small enough. Let's go to bed. And, uh, you know, there is a recognition that in all of creation, God has taken special focus of his creatures, of human beings. And what a wonderful thing. Even in the day, like a beautiful day like we have today, the sun is shining, and yet the stars are still up there, the the galaxies, everything. We just can't see them. It's blotting out everything we see in the heavens. Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote that if the stars came out only once a century, people would stay up all night gazing at them, all night gazing at the stars. It's interesting how David uses the terminology here. He again, as glorifying God, his majesty in verse 3 and verse 4, he asked two questions. What is man that you should take thought of him? And what is the son of man that you should care for him? David, in his smallness, as he gazed up at the heavens, was asking these questions. And the word that's translated for us, man, there, uh, the the man and son of man, are two different Hebrew words. The first one, when we see in verse 4, what is man? Enosh, Enosh. And then what is the son of man? That's Adam, or Adam, as we would say. The first human being is named that way. But Enosh was also a person. In Genesis chapter 4, by that time, uh, we have the fall of mankind uh, through Adam and Eve. And they have many children, and their children are having children. And uh, Cain slays Abel. And so we see the first murder, and Cain slaying Abel. And everybody's kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And uh, then we see a little bit further on in chapter 4, Lamech. Lamech is like a great, great, great grandson of Adam and Eve. And he boasts to his wives that he has killed a man for touching him and even a child for touching him. And he says his retribution will go 70 times 7. And so the earth is full of murder and full of murderous hearts and people. Then it says that Adam and Eve have another child. And his name they name Enosh. Enosh. And it tells us at the end of chapter 4, from that time on, people began seeking God. I don't know what it was about Enosh, but from that time on, the people began seeking God. And there's a sense in which both of these titles, Enosh and Adam, emphasize man's frailty, his weaknesses, his trouble, his sin. And so here he says, what is this man? And David is asking this question, what is it about Enosh? What is it about Adam? the son of Adam, that you would even take note of us and not just simply destroy us. The contrast is the biblical view of human beings. By the way, when I say man, this is not gender specific, but gender inclusive language here, men and women uh, that is being used here. He goes on to answer his own question by the revelation of the program and purpose for God for human beings. Majesty, God is... A majestic God. He is a a God of simplicity, a God of wisdom. Fourthly, he is a God of purpose in verses 5 through 8. Verses 5 through 8. Our rank in creation, look at verse 5. You you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. So our rank in uh, creation, a little lower than God. Now, if you use the NIV version or the King James version, NIV will say a little lower than heavenly beings, Uh, King James will say a little lower than the angels. And both of those translations, both translations teams have taken a hint from the Septuagint translation, which was a translation from the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament into Greek two centuries before the time of Christ. And at that time, those who translated the Septuagint from Hebrew into Greek Uh, were horrified that man would be a little bit lower than God, so they changed it to angels or heavenly beings. And the King James translators in 1611 took the same tact. They believed that there must be something wrong here, so they inserted angels rather than God. But the word here really is for God. Man was created a little lower than God in this. And... So he's a little lower. It's better, one person said, it's better to be a little lower than God than a little higher than the monkeys. And uh, there's something to be said about that. Man is without equal here on earth. Now remember, David is talking about what God's purposes were in creating man here. He's not referring to the chaos and rebellion that came from the fall, but ultimately what God had designed and planned for human beings. We are without intellect here on earth. Uh, We understand something of the immensity of God. We have an intellect, emotion. Uh, we respond to what our minds have grasped, and we have will. We acknowledge in action what the mind has grasped and the heart has felt. We are intellectually honored, emotionally glorious, and volitionally unique. Now, because of the fall, because of Adam and Eve's sin, and all of us are recipients and heirs of that, we are Uh, marred in being in the image of God. But you were given a crown here, it says in verse 4, with glory and majesty. Uh, The Apostle Peter repeats this back in 1 Peter 1-7 in the New Testament, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we are to rule over creation. Look at verses 6 through 8. Uh, this is <clears throat> where he tells us here you make him rule, excuse me, you make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. Uh, Just like with Adam and Eve before the fall, they were given dominion, responsibility to care for God's creation. We are simply stewards of what God has given to us. Uh, God's words take us back to the moment that God decreed that we should reign, he should reign. There's a time even before the world existed when the triune God planned the redemption of sinners. And at that time, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, took on human flesh in the fullness of time, Galatians 4.4 4 tells us. And so David is celebrating the God who is the God of majesty, the God who is the God of simplicity, the God who is the God of wisdom, the God who is the God of purpose, our original purpose, which will be restored, by the way. And finally, God is a God worthy of ardent adoration. Verse 9, his excellent name, we've already talked about it. again, O Yahweh, our Adonai, O personal God, our master, if that you will. But we see in his exalted glory here that between verses 8 and 9, there's a great parenthesis, and it is yet to be fulfilled, and we see in the New Testament who fulfills this. And if we would insert here Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, if you turn over to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, towards the end of your New Testaments, in Hebrews chapter 2, the writer writes, six. well, let me start in verse 5, verse 5. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. In other words, future tense. But one has testified somewhere saying, and these are the familiar words, what is man that you should remember him or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see things subjected to him. And that's where we live. All things are not subject to human beings and even to Jesus at this point. But verse 9, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the glory because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, we might test, he might test, taste death for everyone. He is the fulfillment of Psalm 8. Psalm 8 is known as a prophetic psalm or a messianic psalm, anticipating the coming of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Only after the substitutionary death of the Son of Man followed by his victorious resurrection and his coronation at the second coming, will he indeed reign over all the earth and all things will be subject to him. By the way, in the New Testament, uh, Jesus is the only one who called himself the Son of Man. No one else called him that. Only Jesus called himself, and it is that prophetic designation that he is the fulfillment of Psalm 8. To summarize, God the Father created us really to be kings, to be co-reigning with Christ, But the disobedience of our first parents robbed us of that and our own sin. And God the Son came to earth and redeemed us. And today the Holy Spirit of God empowers us to reign in life by one, by Jesus Christ in Romans 5. When you crown Jesus Christ Lord of all you, you are a sovereign and not a slave, a victor and not a victim. O Lord our God, how excellent your name is in all the earth. So the question is, is, uh, who are you? why are you here, where did you come from, where are you going, all those are answered in Psalm 8 in the Lord Jesus Christ. A believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, before we answer those questions, you have to say, who do you say that he is? Because he is the answer to all of those questions. When he asked the disciples in the Gospels, who do the people say that I am, and who do you say that I am? And that is the fundamental question that leads us to the answers for the other questions If you are a believer in Christ, you belong to him, Romans 5, 17. We are yielded to Christ's will for us. We depend upon the spirit of God, Ephesians 5. Live for God's glory, Psalm 8 here. Trust God for the everyday needs and problems in 1 Samuel 17. I was reading the commentary by Warren Wiersbe on this psalm, and he does a great job on it. But he talks about when he was uh, in school as a child, for some reason he memorized the full name of the then Duke of Windsor, the then Duke of Windsor who became the King of Great Britain and he uh, abdicated his throne, King Edward VIII. But his full name is Edward Albert Christian George Andrew Patrick David Windsor. And uh, Wearsby says that uh, he, he doesn't remember why he, he memorized it but then he realized that it was world news in his day when uh, King Edward VIII abdicated to marry a commoner, Mrs. Wallace Simpson. And Wiersbeck goes on to say, sentimentalists and traditionalists will argue until the end of time as to the rationale of his decision. What does concern me is this. When he left the throne, he gave up a great deal of wealth, authority, and position. That is exactly what happens to believers in Christ when they do not reign in life by Jesus Christ. And we want to reign in life with Jesus Christ. This morning we are coming together. We are coming to remember what Jesus Christ has done for us. If those who are going to help serve this morning's elements would come forward, uh, we are going to observe the Lord's table together, or communion. And we do this once a month. We're not told in Scripture how often to observe the Lord's table, uh, but we choose to do it once a month. It's more about what the Lord's table represents. Twice in the central passage in 1 Corinthians, uh, Jesus Christ tells us, uh, to do this in remembrance of him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The central passage for the practice of the Lord's table in the local church. Uh, the Apostle Paul writes there, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, in the, that, in, uh, that the Lord Jesus Christ in the night in which he was betrayed took the bread. So we have the bread and the cup. And this is an observance, a memorial time to remember what Jesus has done. And as for those who've already believed in Jesus Christ for everlasting life, if you have never done that, just observe and consider your own eternal well-being and to recognize there is a gift waiting for you that Jesus Christ said, if you believe in me, uh, you will have everlasting life over 150 times in the New Testament He uses that terminology, or the writers of the New Testament use the terminology that everlasting life is based on belief in what Jesus Christ has done for us. And he has taken our place on Calvary. He has given us a future and a hope and a victory over sin and death. And so we come together to remember that, to remember those things as we partake of the bread and the cup. And so it tells us here that Jesus took this, in the night in which he was betrayed, remember he met with them in the upper room with his closest disciples, his followers, and they observed the Passover feast, and yet Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of the Old Testament Passover feast, which had been going on year by year for thousands of years since the Exodus, and the people were observing it because God commanded them to, because it was a picture of the coming rescuer, the Messiah, and it turned out. That Jesus is the fulfillment of that Passover feast. So Jesus took the elements and he applied new meaning to them because he was the fulfillment of the blood, bread and the blood and the cup. And so uh, it tells us here that when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, So I'm going to ask uh, Greg to give thanks for the bread.